Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. I'm Condensate Condi Stewart, and today we are going to play So You Want to Trade Crude. Aside from yours truly, we have three other experts here with us today. The lawyer, the analyst, and really the trader. Representing the lawyer is Glenn Swartz from Rapidan Energy. Hi, uh, glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me along. And another purveyor of the jurisprudence representing the analyst is Shireen Lakani, also from Rapidan Energy. Hey, hey, everyone. And finally, and definitely the least, representing the trader is, oh, God. Karen, did we leave the window open again? Yeah, okay, but him, whatever. Jim Mitchell from Refinitive. Uh, your blinds are broke. <laughs> Each player will get the same question in two minutes to make their points. We will have a lightning round to finish up the game. So here we go, guys. First question. Will President Biden declare a climate emergency? And what could that mean for oil and refined products? Glenn, let's start with you. Yeah, I think, I think the answer is no. And I think probably because if... First of all, he's been consistent. He's been one of the few Dems that were running and said he wouldn't. But if he were going to do it, I think he would have already done it. And, uh, you know, the time to do it was on climate day, you know, when he issued all those executive orders. Uh, the impact, however, would be substantial. Uh, it's It unleashes all manner of just comically expansive powers, really, that uh, Congress has thought to, to delegate off to the president, uh, provided emergencies declared. Uh, the, the, the worst offender of which is International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA. Um, what that does is once an emergency is declared, the president can do literally anything he wants to do to imports and exports. Uh, you know, that, that includes everything from nothing to a crude export ban, um, notwithstanding what Congress did in 2015. And everything in between, really. He could put a cap on sulfur. He could put a cap on, he can ban fract oil from being I, you know, I don't think he's going to do that. In his mind, that's sort of a, a nuclear option. Uh, if he goes the climate emergency route, I think it's more likely to happen later in his first term when maybe Republicans have taken over Congress after his successful midterms, or he just gets absolutely frustrated with the level of partisan gridlock and needs some reason to go it alone. But at, at this point, I think he's going he's gonna to hold this fire, maybe use it as a leverage threat to try to push other priorities through Congress. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Shireen? Uh, well, agreed with Glenn. I, I don't think he will, but if he did, uh, it would be bad. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple, there's a lot of things that could happen, right, that, uh, that would significantly expand the president's ability to impact shale if he were to declare a climate emergency. One of the questions that one of the questions that we've gotten a lot of interest in uh, from clients recently is whether Biden would be able to ban crude oil export exports under um, a climate emergency. So yes, he would. Um, and, and I'm sure Glenn would love to go through the mechanics of that because he's been asked that about like 20 million times already. Uh, but, you know, like the impact would be very, very bad. The, the likelihood is low. Um, but for, just to kind of paint the picture of the potential impact in terms of fundamentals, if, if a move like this were to be made, it, you know, we'd have a huge domestic supply gl glut. We'd have WTI Brent prices 
um, or the spread collapsing to where WTI would trade low enough to turn off shale, maybe 30, 35. So at least a $20 collapse in the spread, but bullish Brent uh, and a, a boon for non-US light sweet crude producers. Um, I'm thinking Nigeria right now. Um, and, and who would you know need to fill in um, for the, the gap in light sweet crude, especially in Asia. So it would be very, very, very bad news for for midstreams as well that are building VLCC facilities offshore. Um, it'd have an impact on Canada that imports some of our light sweet, uh, light sweet crude and uses it as diluent to transport oil sands back to the US. Uh, the only winners in that situation would be refiners who wouldn't complain because their crack spreads would be artificially widened and, and they'd be able to capitalize on that. So. Um, there, like, there are so many different downstream impacts that could come from a climate emergency um, declaration that I'm not sure would help satisfy the entire consist- constituency um, that that have have put Biden into his presidency. So, um, is it going to happen? No. If it does, it would be very bad. All right. Thanks, Shireen. Are you sure about this, Karen? Okay. Jim, to you. Oh, great question, Napa. That's Condi. Uh, that's ambitious. I think it's going to be close, like a 50-50% chance of happening. But I do think President Biden will eventually declare a climate emergency. Certainly not the bill that was recently introduced into a House committee. This bill reads like the New Green Deal with a different title. As we heard from Shireen and Glenn, uh, they're much better suited to talk about the implications of executing the president's agenda, whether either via an act of Congress or through other uh, powers that the president has at his disposal. From my former trader perspective, the path is somewhat irrelevant. The president has an agenda, and he's going to try to execute it. There isn't anything new from what President Biden campaigned on. The markets had a year and a half to contemplate the effects of this, and we're seeing it play out now. As of this recording, WTI is up 58% since November 1st. That apparently doesn't sit very well with the administration. So the Department of Energy recently announced the sale of crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The DOE is going to offer 10.1 million barrels of heavy sour crude deliverable April 1st through May 31st. And yes, I do enjoy the irony of an administration that got elected from support of the new green dealers making money by selling heavy sour crude oil. I guess we we now know the administration's plans for how to manage the SPR, using it for economic purposes and not its intended use for dis- supply disruptions. This is going to have profound implications on every administration going forward. It's also, like Shireen mentioned, going to sour relations with Canada and Mexico. One final point. Regardless of the path of President Biden's agenda, increasing the fuel efficiency standards will have eventual but noticeable negative effect on the refined products demand. It also does come with an unintended consequence. Auto companies will want to recover their research investment. That means higher auto prices. And that means a restriction in mobility for lower-income Americans. That does not play very well during elections. 
All right. Question two. Why should anyone care about NEPA? Shireen, let's start with you. Sure. And this is, I think, Glenn's favorite question, so I'm excited for his answer, too. But um, NEPA. Pipelines. I mean, let's be real. Pipes are more efficient in terms of cost and impact to the environment method of transporting oil and gas than rail cars, right? So DAPL, I think, is a really good example of how NEPA violations can cause kind of a whirlwind of issues for the industry. So I'll, I'll focus on more of the fundamental side to paint this picture. Um, just some background for anyone who's not familiar with DAPL, um, which seems like it's impossible to not be familiar with DAPL these days. Uh, it's a 570 a day line that transports crude from the Bakken to Patoka, where it then hops or it transports uh, onto Etcop to Nederland. So it's a, it's a relatively new pipe um, and, and clearly not without issues. But shutting down DAPL could significantly change the transport dynamics in the Bakken and then also have downstream effects to other markets. Um, including the Midwest and Cushing and the U.S. Gulf Coast. Um, so we could see the barrels, the barrels would still move, they'd just be absorbed differently and cause you know, risk to Clearbrook basis and Bakken producers. Um, you could have some downstream upside to pipelines headed to Guern the Guernsey market. Um, so Double H, Butte, Belfuge, South Bend, um, rail cars would have to be the marginal mover of barrels, which is riskier for the environment and costs, it costs more simply, uh, which is why Clearbrook basis would be at risk. Um, but then it doesn't just stop there though, right? You also have impacts to um, you know, pipelines that are moving uh, barrels from the Guernsey market to other markets. So Pony Express in this case would benefit um, heading uh, pushing barrels down into Cushing. So then you have more supply in Cushing, um, but you have less supply going to Midwest refineries in, in the Patoka region and Edcop running practically empty, um, which would make it even harder for a cap line reversal project to, to be justified from that area. So there's a lot of downstream impacts here that, uh, that it's, 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 it's like, hitting that first domino and then you see all these different things that can be affected. Um, but that's just one example of how, uh, how, how NEPA can affect one pipeline and then a whole slew of other assets across the industry and across the value chain. So that's why we care about NEPA, but I'll let Glenn do the nitty gritty on the legal side. Thanks, Shireen. Uh, before we get to Glenn, I guess Jim, answer the question. Hey, thanks, Butane. Oh, God. I don't really even want to care about NEPA, Michael Regan, the EPA, Army Corps of Engineers, or this mysterious thing called the President's Council on Environmental Quality. Yet, here we are. This is where the trade-offs between environmental contamination and constraints on business are played out. Since none of us want to be back in the Stone Age, there has to be trade-offs. That's what sustainability means. For what it's worth, Michael Regan is President Biden's pick for the EPA administrator, and I may disagree with some of his politics or rulings, but the fact that he listens and understands the above, good enough for me. The Council on Environmental Quality is literally where the presidential agenda comes from. Brenda Mallory is the chair, and she was sworn in on January 20th. She was the general counsel for this office under President Obama. 
So now does it make sense why President Biden's environmental policy is so similar to Obama's? As Shireen mentioned, the National Environmental Policy Act is a systematic process by which environmental impact is considered for all projects, far beyond just energy. The Army Corps of Engineers delivers engineering services, and if you've never read one of the three categories of NEPA documentation, categorical exclusion, environmental assessment, or environmental impact statement, you'll gain a new appreciation for the depth and breadth of detail NEPA requires. So given all that, why should you care? For equity traders and corporate executives, this is where the constraints on the E in the ESG will originate. For commodity traders, I have three words, term, structure, volatility. Finally, Glenn, to you. Yeah, sure. So NEPA to me is sort of like the Teddy Roosevelt of, of environmental laws, uh, where it, it, it speaks softly, but it carries a big stick. So what, what you have here is a procedural statute and nothing gets you know lawyers pumped up more than procedure. Um, but it's all you have to do is take a good, hard look at the environmental consequences. What that means is any time you have a, federal, a major project and you need a federal permit of some kind, you got to conduct a NEPA review. And now that NEPA review can take as long, it can be as thorough as really as Biden wants it. What we saw in the Trump administration, um, you know, they got blocked in the courts. They got uh, a lot of delays that didn't otherwise need to happen. I mean, NEPA is procedural. So all you need to do is conduct the analysis. Your analysis can say, this project is so bad for the climate, it's gonna kill all the polar bears, melt all the ice caps, it's approved anyways, and no court will touch that. What you can't do is just hand wave the analysis. And that's what we saw the Trump administration do. They tripped over this very low bar and that resulted in, as Shireen said, um, an opportunity for the Biden administration to jump in and, and revoke some permits for pipelines that could have been otherwise up and running. So what you have here is now an administration that's going to take it in the other direction. Um, while courts will absolutely ding you if you don't do a thorough enough analysis, there's almost no court in the planet that will say, hey, you're taking too long. You're doing too thorough of an analysis. And that's what we can really expect under Biden. What it does is it gives you this time, it gives you this period, it gives you this uh, lever to, to make uh, uh, infrastructure investments less attractive because they know they need to engage in, in, a, in a time consuming process. And during that, what you'll see happen, and this has happened already, we expect it to happen with Apple, while this review is taking place, that's a trial balloon. Um, we'll see uh, you know, lots of lobbying from the progressive left and from the right, from the moderates, what they think about that. And that will give the administration time to decide ultimately if they decide to approve or disprove pro or, or, or reject projects. And, and, and that's going to be a huge implication because it gives them virtual veto power over uh, these types of projects. And, and, and it's not just pipelines. It's, it's everything, including renewable energy transmission. Uh, um, it's, it's including, you know, pumping stations. It's, it's anything that will, will, uh, will impact the energy sector, um, that, that we need to move these hydrocarbons. Um, and, and I think we'll see the Biden administration really use NEPA as a, as a cudgel and that courts won't be able to interrupt and overturn it 
the way they were under the Trump administration. So it, it's, it's a really uh, a substantial weapon he has in his arsenal here. All right, thanks, Glenn. So question three, and this is our final regular question. How does the waters of the United States rule play into this? I'm afraid to even ask, Jim. Have no fear, propane. As a former <sighs> trader, I love this stuff. When politicians of either ilk wade into the title pool on a highly nuanced law like the Clean Water Act of 1972 or any of its attempted fixes, they're considering their own motivations. Sure, they'll give some thought to the stakeholder implications. Typically, zero thought to the unintended consequences. Denying a permit or suspending construction doesn't mean the oil is not going to flow. As long as demand is there, it's simply going to come from another location or flow a different path, have different costs, and involve different people. Does it have longer-term consequences? Yeah, of course it does, but that's part of the opportunity. A delayed or canceled crude pipeline, for example, may mean other logistics are now incentivized or production shifts to a different region and everything downstream from that changes value. Demand creates trends. These rulings create unintended consequences. One politician's unintended consequence is another trader's eventual chateau on the bayou. All right. Glenn? Yeah, so the waters of the United States or this WOTUS rule is jurisdictional in nature. And what it does and why it's related to NEPA is it expands the scope of which projects need permits and therefore which projects need to undergo these NEPA environmental reviews. So, you know, it's something that's been batted around for courts literally for 40 years uh, where they just don't have a clear definition. In, in, in the statute, it says navigable waters. Well, what does navigable waters mean? The subject has been billion, probably billions in, in legal fees and in court cases over the years and, and, and really expanded uncertainty. I mean, you used to have, you know, we all have in our heads a, a picture of what we think navigable waters means, but over the years, it's meant everything from, you know, uh, something you could ride a boat on to, you know, a, a, a water hole that is sometimes dry, has no connection to anything, but sometimes migratory birds show up. Uh, you know, that's evolved over the years and it was only made less clear uh, when the Supreme Court finally stepped in in 2006. And since then, we have we've had two dueling definitions. We've had Justice Kennedy's, which is a significant nexus rule, which is a lot more permissive. And we have Justice Scalia's, which uh, which has a, a much narrower definition. Uh, Obama tried to codify the Ken Kennedy um, um, version of events and uh, President Trump tried to codify the Scalia version of events. And guess what? We're going back to the uh, to the uh, Kennedy version of events with Biden. And what that means is anytime you cross now one of these water bodies that is now considered navigable that under Trump would not have, now you're now you need a federal permit. If you need, need a federal permit, you know, that's time, that's energy. And that's, uh, a, uh, you know, a lever that the federal government now has over your project that it might not have otherwise had. So it, it is significant um, for, for the oil and gas sector in that it, it affects the pace of these projects and it affects the, the, uh, the ability of the federal government to influence them through the permitting process. All right. Thank you. Um, Shereen, please bring us home. Sure thing. 
I can't think of a specific example of a project that's been affected by this rule recently, um, but you know, there are so many pipelines that cross bodies of water. It's virtually impossible to not cross a water barrier for like a long haul pipeline. I mean, imagine all the zigzagging that would need to happen, higher costs, longer construction timeframes, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on, right? Um, line five crosses the Strait of Mackinac, and that's been a huge issue at the state level uh, in Michigan that doesn't quite fit into the waters of the U.S. rule, but still um, an example of how how hot the waters can get, pun intended, when it comes to these types of issues. All right. Thanks, Shireen. Now to the lightning round. All four of us will play this round, each player and yours truly. We'll have 15 seconds to answer. Here's the question. In what year do electric vehicles, BEVs that is, account for one-tenth of U.S. light vehicle sales? I'll start. From a basic statistical standpoint, I'll say that we have about six more years before that's the case. So, 2027. Shereen? Not this decade. Long story short, boom follows bust. We're not out of the bust yet, but we're still a little hungover from COVID and we will be for a little while, but there's a boom coming and it's a demand-driven boom. The EV, the pace of EV uh, transitions is not going to happen this decade. So I'm thinking 2030s. All right, Glenn? Yeah, I would, I would say between 2030, 2035, I think a lot of these incentive structures like California ZEV program and, and the U.S. CAFE program are not as stringent as they need to be. I think if you're going to see a lot of adoption, it's going to need to follow the, the method by which, you know, coal was kind of killed by gas and that was by lower prices. So once, you know, the price, uh, even with subsidies, makes it economic for people to start buying EVs, then you'll start to see much more adoption. Until then, it's going to be largely at the margins for uh, probably for wealthier uh, folks. All right. Now, Jim? If we assume 2019 is the base year for car sales going forward, the market saw 17 million light vehicles sold and about 450,000 EVs. To get to that 1.7 to 1.8 million units sold, I think it happens a lot closer to 2030. All right, so we have time for one more lightning question for a related subject. Do you think that hybrid electric vehicles are dead? Now, I'll start by saying that given the offerings of BEVs out there and, and, and its expansion there, and that BEVs overtook HEVs in sales a couple of years ago, that HEVs aren't dead, but they are on life support. Glenn? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they're dead. I think uh, they have less... Uh, hills to climb as far as consumer adoption. And I would say, I think dealerships aren't as quite uh, against them as, uh, as, as they are for, for full electric plugins. And that makes a big difference because the, you know, if you really want people to sell them um, or, or to buy them, uh, you're, you're going to want uh, dealerships to want to sell them. <laughs> All right. Shereen? Um, I don't think so. Not quite. I mean, Formula One went hybrid several years ago and actually have their eyes on edging further left than Bernie Sanders these days. So if that's any indication of the future, I think we're still in that kind of phase where hybrids still have some sort of some appeal, um, easier to swallow pill, so to speak, uh, before we get to the point where um, the demand for, for pure 
electric vehicles really starts to pick up. Okay, folks, that's all the time. Do we have to, Karen? I mean, we let them stay. I didn't call security on them today. Fine. Jim, answer the question. I bet you have a clean desk, don't you? <laughs> the gravity that is Tesla is pulling other car companies along the battery electric vehicles path instead of hybrids. I don't see that changing. I agree. Hybrids are on life support. All right. Thanks, everyone, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. We know we had some fun here today, but in all seriousness, I mean, three of us here are lawyers. Uh, please remember that now, as was the case before, all opinions expressed on this podcast by me, Jim, or any of our guests are our own and are not those of Refinitiv or our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>